And um, my wife reminded me to let you know that Kim Ozen's sister needs special prayer. Um, evidently, they uh, found something that's not just right with her, and so we want to pray for Kim Ozen's sister, and we'll know more about that in just a, in a day or so. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share your word and make it applicable to our lives as always. This April of 2013, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I heard about this airplane that was about to land. There was this airplane that was about to land, and the flight attendant came over the loudspeaker and she said, we'd like to welcome our new co-pilot this morning. We want to welcome our new co-pilot this morning. He's about to make his first commercial landing. He's going to make his first commercial landing. So when the plane stops, please give him a big round of applause. In a few minutes, the plane made an extremely bumpy landing, going up and down a few times. She came over the loudspeaker again and she said, thanks for flying with us today. Don't forget to tell our new co-pilot which one of the three landings you liked best. <laughs> That's a corny one, I know. You know, the Christian life can be compared to making a landing, can be compared to making a, an air landing, airplane landing. At times it's bumpy, uh, and unfortunately not everyone lands safely. At times it's bumpy and not everyone lands safely. I've got to share some bad news, and then I will give you some good news, but the bad news is not everyone lands safely. Last year, if you weren't aware of this, a well-known evangelical pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, the pastor of a 25,000 large megachurch, a black pastor, Eddie, Bishop Eddie Long, New Birth Missionary Baptist Church, was accused and later found he admitted to having sexual relations with three or four young black men. In our own denomination, I heard about another particular pastor having moral failure and having to resign his pastorate. Uh, two summers ago, I, I visited and had fellowship with a church that was having celebrating their 50th uh, anniversary uh, of that church's existence. And I remember walking in, and, and there was a lady that we used to pastor there, and she came up to me and she said, did you hear the news? And I said, no, I didn't. And she said, did you know that uh, my husband left me. She had two teenagers at the time. My husband left me, and she said, you know, out of all the people that I uh, would have never thought that this would have happened to, it would have been me. And she went on and with tears in her eyes, and I couldn't believe my ears because I couldn't ever see that happening with this particular couple and with this man. He was the last person. How can a person be moral and upright one minute and seemingly uh, the next moment, do something so painful and so tragic that it drags Jesus Christ's name through the mud. As we begin to study this new series in the life of David, I hope that we'll see a number of things. That, that willful sin, willful sin in and of itself, is usually something that does not happen overnight. Usually what happens is, is that people, they have a slow drift, you might want to say. They begin to compromise a little bit here and a little bit there, and they compromise over a period of time, and then all of a sudden we see some sort of moral failure. And, and that God uses so-called nobodies, and he turns them into somebodies. 
beauty and brains and bucks and charisma, they often impress people in our world, but they do not impress God. God is always looking at the heart. The heart of the matter is always the heart. And I hope that we'll see in this particular series that you can become a better parent, a better mother or father, and how to lead and nurture your children and also how to permit, prevent marital unfaithfulness and how to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with our spouse. But let me, let me set the background. Let me set the background for our story in the life of David this morning. Forty years, 40 years before God chose David as a king of Israel, the people of Israel were in this moral slide, immoral slide, a long drift away from God, a long erosionary process was taking place. And Samuel, who was the first, uh, excuse me, who was the last judge, who was the last of the judges, was elderly. He was up in years. And as a result of that, he appointed his own son, sons to be the next uh, judges of Israel. I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 8, one more time, verses 1 through 3. It says that when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served in Beersheba. But notice verse 3, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside from dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Simply put, the people were disillusioned. They were disillusioned. Samuel was up in ears. He elected his sons to be the judges, and his sons were crooks, and they took bribes, and they thoroughly were corrupt. How many of you remember a number of years ago in Southern California, there was a small community called Bell? And what happened in Bell, California, spread clear around the nation. The reason why is, is because there were a group of city officials that were on the take. Did you know the city manager of Bell and his assistant made over $1 million a year? And the city councilmen were paying themselves $100,000 a year to show up at a city council meeting for one hour a month. And those individuals were eventually prosecuted and they were found guilty and they're spending jail time at this particular time. The people of Israel, they were outraged. They were outraged because of what Samuel's sons were doing. They were crooks, they were taking bribes, and they were not showing true righteousness and true justice. And so they were outraged. And what they wanted was, they wanted a human king. So they had a summit at Ramna, a place five miles north of Jerusalem, and they said to Samuel, look at verse 5 with me, they said to him, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Did you hear the three reasons why they wanted an earthly king? Number one, they said, you're old. Number two, they said to Samuel, your sons are corrupt. And number three, we want to be like the other nations. We're talking about the people of God. They wanted to be like the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. We're tired of worshiping God Almighty, and we want a figurehead, so to speak, and we want an earthly leader. And this broke Samuel's heart, so much so that the Lord, he went to the Lord in prayer about it. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people and listen to what they're saying to you. It is not you they have rejected as their king, but it is me. 
as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Verse 9, now listen to me, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will do. He will reign over them. And um, and uh, verse 21, when Samuel heard all this, the people said, and he repeated before the Lord, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Samuel was very disappointed because the children of Israel wanted an earthly king. He understood the very fact that they did not trust him because of his son, because of the, the corruption of his sons. But he thought this was an extreme. Why would you have to have an earthly king when you have a heavenly father, when you have a heavenly king? And he couldn't understand this. And God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And therefore, let them have this earthly king. But I want you to explain to them what's going to happen. And sure enough, as soon as they appointed this earthly king, the things that God warned them about begin to happen. And the man that they chose was a man called Saul. He was tall and he was dark and he was handsome. Notice the description in chapter 9, verse 2 of this young man called Saul that they chose as a king. He was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. He was a head taller than any of the others. And you know, that's typically how people choose a king. And that's typically how a person chooses a political leader. Often they don't care about the substance. They're looking for the charisma. They're looking for the personality. They're looking for the bronze. They're looking for the beauty. They're looking for the brains. And so it was with the children of Israel. They chose Saul primarily because of all those external factors. So they elected him. And you know, at first, Saul swept the people off of their feet. At first, Saul could organize people, and he organized an army, and he began to impress people at first. He had enough stuff to put it all together, so to speak. But shortly after taking office, his true colors begin to show. Now, before we look at David's life, I want to look closely at the problem with Saul. I want to look at his experiences. Somebody has said this. Somebody has said, experience is a good teacher, but the best teacher is learning from the mistakes of other people. We can learn something when we look at the first king of Israel, Saul. And Saul Saul became king of Israel at 30 years of age. And for 42 years, until he was 72 years, he had, you might want to say, a long slide downward in his kingship. He had three major character flaws. First of all, I want you to notice in your message notes, Saul was extremely impatient. He was extremely impatient. We all have a tendency to be impatient, but this man was the extreme of impatience. It says an example of this is that Saul waited for Samuel seven days. He waited for Samuel for seven days. It was a critical juncture. To give you the background, they were surrounded by their mortal enemies, the Philistines, and the the troops were quaking in their boots, so to speak. And Samuel kept saying through a messenger, wait for me, wait for me, wait for me, wait for God to deliver. Do not burn sacrifices. Do not go to the altar. Do not do any of those things. Wait for me, wait for me. And for seven days, Saul waited on pins and needles. And finally, he got so impatient that he did the thing that he was not supposed to do. He began to burn sacrifices to God and to begin to petition God without Samuel being there. Who likes to wait? 
raise your hand if you're a very, very patient person. <laughs> Some of you are. <laughs> Who likes to wait for anything? You know, I'm a single person, and I want to get married yesterday. I have all kinds of financial problems, and I want those financial problems solved yesterday. I'm having problems with my kids and, and my grown children. They're making unwise decisions, and I want them to make the right decision, and I wanted to, want them to do that yesterday. I want my finances turned around yesterday. Church, the waiting rooms of life, and that's what they are, the waiting rooms of life teach us character. It's in the waiting rooms of life that we learn about ourselves. It's in the waiting rooms of life that we often draw closer to God. I don't know why why it is, but God is always trying to teach me patience because I have a tendency to be a very, very impatient person. And I remember one time when I was younger, a young pastor, I thought that something should happen and I begin to pray for it. It seems so simple. It seems so logical. God, why don't you answer my prayer? Month after month and month after month and after a month or two, went by, uh, excuse me, past the deadline where I gave God a deadline. Can you believe it? After a couple months after the deadline that I gave God, it continued on. And finally, finally, my prayer was answered. But you know what happened? I grew a lot more patient during that particular time and that time that I went through. Saul was extremely impatient, and this this was a character flaw. The second thing that that Saul had, the second character flaw was, is that he rationalized. He believed his own rational lies. He rationalized. He believed his own rational. He tried to rationalize his his lies. He tried to justify his disobedience to God. In chapter 14, Saul was supposed to destroy all the Amalekites. Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekite king, and he was supposed to destroy all of their livestock, the sheep and the cattle. And in a humorous but tragic scene, chapter 15, turn over there with me, chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Look at what happens, chapter 15, 13 and 14. When Samuel finally reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He carried out the Lord's instructions. He was supposed to kill the Amalekites. He was supposed to kill the cattle. He was supposed to kill the sheep. He wasn't supposed to have any survive. He says, I've carried out your instructions. Verse 14, this is humorous. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? If you destroyed all the livestock, why am I hearing the sheep bleat and why am I hearing the cows moo? And he rationalized some more. He lied to himself. He lied to God. He lied to Samuel. It was a bald-faced lie. And in that verse 22, in that famous phrase, Samuel replied to him, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously not. The Lord desires obedience more than sacrifice. He said, The reason why I didn't burn all the Livestock is because I, I wanted to sacrifice these things to God. And God said, your obedience is more important than your sacrifice. Did you know that uh, during World War II, up till World War II, the emperor of Japan was considered a divine person? Did you know that? He was considered a god. 
They worshipped him as a god. But guess what happened after World War II? There was an edict passed by Emperor Hiroshito himself. And he said, don't worship me as God. I am not deity. This leads me to point number three. You see, Saul not only battled with impatience, but he also battled with pride. He was full of pride. He he tried to, uh, this was his third mistake, the third character flaw. He allowed his ego and he allowed his pride to, he, he became puffed up, you might want to say, more important than God, more important than Israel, more important than his family. He thought he was special. Look at chapter 15, verse 12. Notice what he did. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul. But, but he was told, Samuel went up to meet Saul. Saul, notice, Saul has gone up to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. In other words, he's made a statue to honor himself on the very mountain that God was to be honored. So he's not only full of, of um, impatience, but he's also full of pride. And we remember what it says in the New Testament, lift yourself up and you'll be humbled. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. I want to read what somebody writes, and I want you to listen. The year 1809 was a very good year. Of course, nobody knew it at the time because every eye was on Napoleon Bonaparte as he swept across Austria like a frenzied flame in a parched wheat field. Little else seemed significant than this small, diminutive dictator of France. He was the talk of Europe. The terror of his reign made his name a synonym for military superiority and ruthless ambition. That same year, however, while war was being raged and history was being made, babies were being born in England and America. But who had time to think about babies and bottles and cradles and cribs when Austria was falling and the European countries um, were under such duress? Somebody should have. In 1809, a veritable host of thinkers and statesmen drew their first breaths. William Gladstone was... Born in Liverpool, Alfred Tennyson began his life in, in Lincolnshire. Oliver Wendell Holmes made his first cry in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Edgar Allan Poe in nearby Boston began his life. And in Hodgeville, Kentucky, in a rugged log cabin owned by an illiterate laborer and his wife, were heard the tiny screams of the newborn son, Abraham Lincoln. All this and more happened in 1809, but nobody noticed the destiny of the world was being shaped by Napoleon over in Austria, or was it? The nobodies, nobody noticed, were in fact the genesis of a new era. It was their lives, their brains, their writings that would make the dent for the entire world. Now the year 1020 B.C. was also was also a very good year. Not, not because of Saul, the Napoleon of that day. Saul, Israel's elected king, had begun to fissure under the weighty demands of his role. Rashness, compromise, rationalization, and open disobedience to God soon began to seep into the cracks and, and saturate his shattered character with sin until finally Samuel confronted him, telling him that God had rejected him as Israel's king. We read about that in 1 Samuel 15, 23 and 26. That year was especially significant because... While everyone was watching Saul's reign sink in a secluded field in Bethlehem, God was raising up a young youth, a young man by the name of David, a nobody 
who would change Israel's course forever. God said, I've had it with you, Saul, because of your spiritual pride, and because of your impatience, and because of your disobedience, your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And it will not endure. And the Lord, in thirteen, chapter 13, verse 14 says, He sought for Himself a man after His own heart. Now, in that particular passage of Scripture, there is a one, three-letter word. Man. God sought a man. Only a man. But what a man he was, especially compared to Saul. Did you know that more has been written about David than any other biblical character? Fourteen chapters are written about Abraham. Joseph and Jacob has 11 chapters. Elijah has 10 chapters written about him. But David in the Old Testament has 64 chapters written about him, not to mention 59 references in the New Testament. God says that David was a man after God's own heart. And that is so significant. Coupled, however, with all of these scriptures, we get the idea that David was some sort of superhero, that he must have looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, that he must have had the brains of Alfred Einstein, that he must have had the, the, the money of Bill Gates the billionaire, a man of phenomenal qualities. But don't get the wrong idea. Why did God choose David in the first place? Or why does he choose anyone to use significantly in the kingdom of God? How does God choose people? What kind of people does God choose to use? And to determine that, we first of all have to look at that passage of Scripture on the front of your bulletin. Because this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 29. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. For consider your calling, brethren, that they were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Listen, God does not select people based upon their Arnold Schwarzenegger body, He doesn't select people based on their Albert Einstein brains. He doesn't select people based upon their Bill Gates billionaire status. When God looks for people to use, he's not searching for angels in the flesh. He's not searching for people who have perfect performance. He is searching for men and women just like you, just like me, people of flesh and blood, normal, ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill people, the salt of the earth people that we have in Grant County. However, he is looking for certain qualities in these people, the same qualities he found in David, heart and soul qualities. What are these qualities? Well, first of all, I want you to notice that David had a surrendered heart. You say, what is a surrendered heart, Pastor? He had a surrendered heart. The Lord sought a man after his own heart. The heart of the matter is always the heart. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means above everything else that you want to please God. Did you hear what I said? 
A surrendered heart means that you want to please God, that God's will is preeminent in your life. Now, you might fall down and you might get in the mud and you might be like a sheep that's out of its normal environment, so to speak, and you fall in one of those pig troughs or pig wallows or size or whatever. You might fall into that, but that's not the natural environment for a sheep. A sheep will bleed. A sheep will do everything they can to get out of that pig trough or that pig area. They'll bleed and they'll say, get out, get me out of here. They don't like it. And so a surrendered heart is a person that keeps short accounts with God. They desire to be in the center of God's will and they long to, to please God. They long to please God. They're desirous of God. If God says, jump up, you jump up. If God says, jump down, you jump down. If God says, take a step back, you take a step back. If God says, take a step forward, you take a step forward. What is important to you is keeping an intimate relationship with God when you have a surrendered heart. A parallel verse in Second Chronicles 16.9 says, and confirms this, it reads, For the eyes of the Lord moves to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What is God looking for? For hearts who are completely his. No closed closets, no sweeping things under the rug. You do wrong, you repent. You do wrong, you grieve. You're concerned about pleasing him. A surrendered heart. The second thing I want you to notice is is that David had a servant's heart. He had a servant's heart. The young boy was faithfully keeping his father's sheep. David is 16, 17, 18, maybe 15 years of age. We don't really know. We would call him wet behind the ears teenager. But here is his wet behind the ears teenager. And he's been he's been herding sheep since he was a little boy. And here he is day after day. He's 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 tending his father's sheep. In Psalm 78, 70, it says, God saw humility. He it says that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. When your servant You do what you're told. You don't rebel. You respect those in charge. You serve faithfully and quietly. And that was David. God looked upon David out in the fields, keeping his father's sheep, and he saw the faithfulness of this young man. And he saw him out there, and he said, I'm going to use that young man because he has a servant's heart. A servant doesn't care who gets glory for what is accomplished. And he often just serves to make the other person look better. You remember former President Ronald Reagan. Supposedly on his desk, Ronald Reagan had a plaque and it read, it's amazing how much can be accomplished if people don't care who gets the credit for it. It's amazing how much can be accomplished if people don't care who gets the credit for it. David had a a surrendered heart. He had a servant's heart and he also had a sound heart. You say, what are you talking about? He had integrity. Even as a young teenager, he had integrity through and through. God is looking not for supermen and superwomen, but deeply committed, genuinely humble, honest to the core people who have integrity. Did did you know the Hebrew word for integrity is thomamon? Thomamon. It is translated complete, whole, innocent, unimpaired, sound. That's beautiful. Integrity is... As somebody has said, it's what you are when nobody's looking. Integrity is what you are in the dark. Integrity is what you are behind your closed doors. Anybody can have charisma. Anybody can impress. Anybody can look good, but it's what you are before when you stand before God. 
Today, the world says the only thing that matters is charisma, making a good impression. But you cannot be a person of God with charisma alone. He is impressed with externals. Have you guys ever been falsely accused? Anybody here want to raise your hand? You ever been falsely accused? It hasn't happened to me very much. But this one time stands out as very, very memorable in my mind. And I can laugh about it now, but it wasn't that funny at the time. But I walked into a small business where we used to live at years ago. I walked into a small business. And there was a lady behind the counter. And when she found out who I was, because I had to tell her my name for something, she got livid. She got angry. Her whole face, her whole demeanor changed. She got red in the face. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. I had never met this lady before. And finally it came out. She said, you were that guy. You. You were that guy. She said, you cussed me out over the phone two weeks ago. I recognize the name and, and I recognize your voice. You cussed me out over the phone and it made me so angry. How can you live with yourself? Have you ever been falsely accused? I said, I said, ma'am, I don't remember saying a swear word for years and much less cussing at you over the phone. You must have the wrong guy. She goes, no, no, you're Ron Roberson. Well, I said, you know, there's a, there's a number of Ron Robersons in our small community here. In fact, I went to high school with one of them. I hate to, <laughs> hate to pass it on to somebody else, but I didn't do it. She said, no, it wasn't the other one. What are you supposed to do? What, are, what do you do? What do you do when you didn't do something uh, and, and they're telling you you did it? What do you do? You know, honestly, I would go back in the store. I had to go back in that store because it was a place where I had to shop. I, every time I went back in the store, I thought about writing her a card. I thought about bringing her a bouquet of flowers. I, I thought about, I thought about uh, doing all of these things. But did you know it would have not done any good because every time I went in the store, no matter what I did, I smiled, I was kind, I was gracious. She went like she had sour lemons, you know. She still to this day thinks that I cussed her out over the phone to this day. I had to let it go finally. I had to let it go. There's a lady who thinks, who thought, maybe she still does, thinks I'm terrible, awful. But I know the truth. I know the truth. I know before God and I know before myself that I didn't do what I was accused of. And that's integrity. When you can live with yourself and you can stand before God and you can say, Lord, I'm being falsely accused. I, I got a finger pointed at me. People are saying things about me or whatever it may be. Or, or people want me to do something. They want me to compromise. Or they're, they're over here and, they're, and I'm feel, feeling these temptations, whatever. It, it, we're not trying to impress other people. The bottom line is the most important person in our corner is God. Is God. We, we stand and fall, so to speak, on who we are who we are when everything is peeled away and 
believe it or not, this 15, 16, 17-year-old young man, besides having a surrender heart, a service heart, he had a sound heart. He was a person of integrity. And, and, and we see that even later on, as we will see when David committed awful, terrible sins before God, he wept and he was so sorry for the things he did. And he kept short accounts. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so true. At times, we kind of feel like a um, we kind of feel like a a wet noodle in, in a in a hot water pot. You know, we our resolve sometimes dissolves and and uh, and and um, temptation occurs and happens around us and. And um, there's just a little subtle compromise over here and over there, and and uh, we feel so weak, and and we wonder where you are, and we feel distant from you, perhaps because of that, and or um, th- this faith journey. At times we're going along, and we we just don't know what's happening at times to us in our world. And oh Lord. We thank you that your word tells us that as we draw near to you, you promise to draw near to us. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Simple faith, believing and trusting. Forgive us of our failures. Forgive us of our sins. We do want to keep short accounts with you. We examine our hearts. We examine our lives, Lord. If there's something that we haven't had a chance to confess, we just do so now. We surrender ourselves to you one more time as your people. Longing, longing, Lord, to be responsive to your spirit and to your leading. And longing not to be puffed up with pride. We've gone down that road before and sometimes we go down it again and every time we go down it, it seems like it hurts those people around us and it hurts our our spouses and hurts our children and hurts the people we work with when we get puffed up with pride. So we pray that you'd help us to stay humble, Lord. Help us to stay humble and uh, to be people of integrity, to be people that are... They do what they say. We want to be used. We want to be used, Lord, by you to affect our community and to lead our families. Help us, Lord, and help those of us who are impatient at this time. We've been waiting, Lord, some of us would say, for something to happen, and it just doesn't seem like it's happening quick enough. Give us patience. 
remind us that the fourth fruit of the Spirit is patience. Help us to understand that often in the waiting rooms of life, this is where your true work happens. Work you want to do inside of us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could please have our ushers come forward at this time.